How complete is the destruction of the wicked? How long are the wicked going to burn? Most Christians say that they're going to burn for the ceaseless ages of eternity. They believe in the doctrine of eternal torment, that the wicked are going to be tortured and tormented forever without any rest and any relief. But friends, this cannot be found in the Bible. And this can't be true for three main reasons. I want you to notice them. I hope you write them down. Reason number one why the wicked cannot burn forever is because hellfire burns on the where? Surface of the earth. And the Bible says that the meek are going to inherit the earth. Oh, friends, if the wicked are burning forever on the surface of the earth, how in the world can the meek inherit the earth? They can't, friends, if it's still on fire. Are you with me, yes or no? So that's one of the first reasons why hell cannot be forever. Because God is going to create a new earth after he purifies the old with fire. And so that's one of the first reasons. And the second reason, which is even more important, is that God is a just and fair God. Can you say amen? God is completely and consistently just and fair in the punishment of the wicked. You see, friends, listen, a punishment of eternal torment would not fit the crime. You see, let's take, for example, a biblical example, a man by the name of Cain. Cain, according to what we know from the Bible, he killed one man. How many? He killed his brother Abel. Cain is the first murderer in the Bible. He killed Abel. And then you take another man by the name of Hitler that is responsible for killing millions of people. Now, friends, listen. Cain lived approximately 6,000 years before Hitler. If it's true that the wicked, when they die, they begin to burn in hell, that means that Cain would be burning 6,000 years longer than Hitler for a lesser crime. He killed only one. Hitler killed millions. Do you see, friends, that this would be an unjust punishment? Eternal torment would not fit the crime. Let's, t- let's say uh, the, the, a young person who rejects the gift of God and he's lost. And God will take this young person and burn and torture him for infinity years. Let's say he lived to about 20 years old and all his life he sinned, 20 years of sin, and then he burns him for infinity years. The punishment doesn't fit the crime, does it? That would be unjust in any, any standard of justice, even in our own judicial systems. That would be too much. And friends, God is not like this. God is a just and fair God. And friends, if it's true that the sinners, that sinners burn throughout the ceaseless age of eternity with no rest or no relief, then I would be an atheist tonight. I would not believe and I would not want to follow a God like that. But friends, I'm happy to tell you that this is far from the truth. God is not like that. Can you say amen? Another reason why that sinners are not going to be tormented forever with no relief, reason number three is that there is no such thing as an immortal soul. You see, friends, listen. The doctrine of eternal torment is rooted in the doctrine of the immortal soul that most Christians believe. Most people think that the soul is immortal, that the soul cannot die. And friends, this doctrine comes from Greek Hellenistic philosophy. It's called Platonic dualism. It was popularized by the Greek philosopher Plato in the early centuries. And this heathen paganistic doctrine of an ever-burning hell was brought into 
the Christian church. I want you to notice the U.S. News and World Report quoted uh, a historian that traced the history, uh, Philip Hughes, that traced the history about where the doctrine of eternal torment really came from. Notice, the traditional belief in an unending, unending torment is based more on pagan philosophy than on a correct understanding of Scripture. It is linked to the Greek notion of the innate what? Immortality of the soul. That's what the pagans believed. A belief that is based more on Plato than on the Bible. The immortality of which the Christian is assured is not inherent in himself or is in his soul, but is bestowed by what? By who? By God. In other words, God is the one that gives us the gift of immortality. But as we learned last night, he gives it on the resurrection day when Jesus comes again. In other words, the soul is not immortal. When we die, we simply die, friends. In fact, notice another one, another book, a condi- The Conditionist faith, faith of Our Fathers, Leroy Froome. He quoted, and he, uh, he quoted another doctor that described the history of where the doctrine of eternal torment and ever-burning hell really came from. I want you to notice what it said. The, this doctrine, the doctrine of the immortal soul, can be traced through the muddy channels of a corrupted Christianity, a perverted Judaism, a pagan philosophy, and superstitious idolatry. The Protestants borrowed it from who? The Catholics. The Catholics got it from the Pharisees. The Pharisees from the pagans. And the pagans from the old serpent who first preached the doctrine amid the lowly bowels of paradise to an audience all too willing to hear and heed the new and fascinating theology when the serpent said to Adam and Eve, You shall not surely die. That's where the doctrine of the immortal soul comes from. From Satan himself, then to paganism, then to the Pharisees, then to the Catholics, then to Protestantism. And that's why every, almost every Christian church in the world believes in this doctrine. And friends, what happens if you take an immortal soul and you put that immortal soul into fire? What happens? You have eternal torment. You have suffering and torture without any death at all. You see, friends, you put an immortal soul into fire, eternal torment. And that's why people believe it, because they believe in the immortal soul. But as we learn, the soul is not immortal. You see, when you begin with a faulty premise, you end up with a faulty conclusion. Isn't that right? What do we learn about the soul, friends? You must live forever in order to burn forever. Isn't that right? And if you live forever, that means you are immortal. And if you're immortal, then that means you don't really need Jesus because Jesus is the one that gives immortality. But if you already have it, then you don't need Jesus. In order to burn forever, you first must live forever. You see, I believe in hellfire, friends. But I believe in a hellfire that is so hot that it's going to finish the job. It's going to eradicate putting the wickedness, wicked people out of their misery. You see, for every truth that God has, Satan has a what? A counterfeit. And so what is the truth? about hellfire. I want you to notice in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 4, the Bible says, behold, all souls are mine as the soul of the father. So also the soul of the son is mine and the soul that sins, it shall die. The Bible says that the soul is going to die. It does not have immortality in and of itself. But here's the next question. What, and by the way, what is the soul? Is the soul something in you or is it you? It is you friends. You are a soul. I am a soul, and if we can all die, that shows us clearly that the soul dies. The soul that sins will die. And how many have sinned and fallen short of the the glory of God? All have sinned, and therefore all are worthy and deserving of death. But what kind of death 
will the soul die? Notice what it says in Romans 6, 23. It says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, what kind of death is the punishment for sin? Not just the first death, the second death, friends. The wages of sin is death. And friends, even though it does not say the wages of sin is eternal death, it's clear in the very structure of the verse. Notice it carefully. It's right here. The Apostle Paul is contrasting life and death. He is contrasting wages and a gift. So in contrast to the gift, which is eternal life, the wages, by contrast, is a what kind of death? An eternal death, which is a permanent death, a death without any hope of a resurrection. In other words, a death where your existence is completely eradicated from the universe. Bible is clear, friends. The wages of sin is not just the first. It is an eternal death. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? In fact, even in John 3.16, we see this very clearly. Jesus himself is contrasting life and death. Notice what it says, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but shall have what? Everlasting life. Friends, in contrast to everlasting life, the wages of sin or rejecting the gift of God is that we're going to perish, but what kind of perishing? An eternal perishing. That's not a first death, friends. That is a second death. It's right there, brothers and sisters. In fact, notice another one in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. Jesus said, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The Bible is clear that both the soul and body will die. The immortal soul, friends, this doctrine that comes from Satan, is the root of the false understanding of hellfire. As I mentioned, when you begin with a faulty premise, you end up with a faulty conclusion. And so what exactly will happen to the wicked in the fires of hell? They're going to be consumed until there's nothing left but ashes. Notice what the Bible says in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 1. Please write it down. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly shall be what? Stubble. And the day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither what? Root nor branch. In other words, it's going to be completely consumed. No roots, no branches. The whole tree is completely burnt up. There's a finality. It's an eradication, an annihilation of the wicked, not eternal torment and torture. In fact, notice in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 3, it says, And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be, what's that word? The wishes are going to turn to what? Ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, says the Lord of hosts. But friends, think about it. If the wicked are burnt in eternal torment and they don't die, how in the world are they going to turn to ashes? The Bible said the wicked are going to be burnt, yes, but they're going to be burnt until there's ashes, and that means that there's nothing left. Now, friends, have you ever tried to burn ashes? Is it possible to burn ashes? Friends, you can't burn ashes. It's completely consumed. It's gone. This is the fate of the wicked. In fact, notice in Psalms 37 and verse 20, but the enemies, or excuse me, but the wicked shall what? Perish. Perish. The enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. 
They shall consume into smoke, shall they consume away. The Bible says that they're going to be burnt to ashes, consumed into smoke. Or what's going to happen after the smoke clears? Obadiah chapter 1 and verse 16 tells us, And they shall be as though they had never been. Do you see it, friends? This is a second death, a death without any hope of a resurrection. The wicked are completely annihilated, consumed, and destroyed. In other words, they cease to exist. Their existence is eradicated as well with the sin what they have, have chosen. And friends, if this is clear, if this makes sense, would you please say amen? amen. Now, friends, I know that some of you who are hearing this for the first time might be asking, well, what about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? What about when the Bible says everlasting fire and eternal fire and the smoke shall ascend forever and ever? Now, friends, there are some verses in the Bible that seem to contradict the verses we just read. But friends, the Bible does not contradict itself. Can you say amen? If there seems to be a contradiction, that contradiction lies in our own faulty interpretation and surface understanding of those particular verses. You see, in order to know what truth really is on any given topic, we have to see what the entire Bible has to say concerning that topic. We have to get all the verses and the cooperating verses. We have to compare them with itself. And if you have 50 scriptures saying something very clearly on a topic, and then you have about five scriptures saying something that seems to contradict, what are you going to build your, your, your doctrine upon? Upon the majority of the evidence. And then you'll study these few scriptures in light of what the entire Bible has to say, and you'll see that a careful contextual study shows that the Bible is completely in harmony with itself. And tonight, I'm going to give you a handout that explains those few scriptures that seem to indicate and teach the doctrine of eternal torment. It's going to be so clear that even a little child will be able to see it. But because we still have time, let me go through a few of them with you before we close tonight. I want you to notice. Let's cover a few of them. What about this verse in Matthew 25, verse 46, where Jesus said, talking about the wicked, these shall go away into everlasting what? Punishment. But the righteous into life eternal. Now, friends, a casual surface reading of this verse can cause a person to think that everlasting punishment means eternal torment. But notice, it does not say everlasting punishing. It says everlasting punishment. It's the punishment that's everlasting, not the punishing that's everlasting. Punishment denotes that there's a close to it. There's a finality to it. In fact, as we compare this scripture with what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, we can understand what everlasting punishment really is. Notice what it says. These shall be punished with everlasting what? Destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Friends, what are the wicked going to be destroyed with? The presence of the Lord from the glory of his power because God's glory is like a consuming fire. It's called everlasting destruction. That's what the punishment is. If you look up the word destruction in the dictionary, it literally means the action or process of causing so much damage to something that it no longer exists or cannot be repaired. It's the punishment not the punishing that is everlasting. And friends, if that's clear, would you please say amen? So there's a finality to it. There's an ending to the, the, the suffering in the fires of hell. The ending is the second death, a permanent death without any resurrection. They're put out of their misery, in other words. In fact, let's notice another one. What does the expression everlasting destruction or eternal fire mean? That expression, eternal fire, sounds 
and seems like eternal torment. But I want you to notice how the Bible uses the expression eternal fire. Notice what it says now in Jude in verse 7. Please write it down. The Bible says, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of what kind of fire? So Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of eternal fire. But let me ask you a question, friends. Is Sodom and Gomorrah still burning right now? No, friends. But did they burn, yes or no? Yes. They burnt, but they're not burning now. They burnt until there was nothing left to burn. They were burnt until it was completely ashes. And the Bible says that what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of eternal fire. In fact, notice 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6. The Bible says, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overflow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. The Bible says Sodom and Gomorrah suffered the vengeance of eternal fire, and yet they're still not burning today. They burnt until there's nothing left but ashes, and so we see that eternal fire does not mean eternal torment. Are you with me, yes or no? Friends, mark it very clearly tonight that the Bible tells us that it is the fire that's eternal, not the wicked that is eternal. It's everlasting fire, not everlasting wickedness in the fire, everlasting fire. And friends, by the way, why is the fire eternal? Why does it say that the fire is eternal? Because friends, do you know what that fire represents? It represents the glory of God, which is his love. The Bible says, as we go a little bit deeper tonight, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 29, for our God is a what? Consuming fire. Now question, how long has our God been a consuming fire? For eternity. Our God is an eternal fire. Can you say amen? That's why it's called eternal fire. It's not the wicked that's eternal. It's the fire that's eternal. Now, friends, what does it mean when it calls God a consuming fire? It's not talking about literal fire, friends. God is not a literal fire. What kind of fire is it? Notice what it says in Exodus chapter 24 and verse 17. The Bible says over and over, it likens God to that of fire. It says, and the sight of the glory of the Lord was like what? Devouring fire. What was like devouring fire? The glory of God. Friends, the glory of God, which is his love, is an unquenchable fire. That will last forever. His glory is the fire. In fact, notice in Zechariah chapter 2. And, verse, and by the way, friends, let's go back to that just for a moment. The glory of God is a devouring fire. But what does God glor God's glory devour? It devours sin, friends, and wickedness. It does not devour righteousness. The glory of God, the character, the purity, and the holiness of God. The only thing that it devours is sin and wickedness. But for righteousness, the glory of God is a protecting fire. Notice in Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 5, the Bible says, For I, says the Lord, will be unto her, talking about my people that trust in me, I will be unto her a wall of fire round about and will be the glory in the midst of her. You see, friends, the fire of God's glory consumes sin, but it's a protection to those who trust in him. Do you remember the pillar of fire that led the children of Israel? Through the wilderness wandering, it was the glory of God, friends. That fire did not consume them. It was, a, it was a blessing. It was a hedge of protection. It was a wall of fire that protected them from the Egyptians. 
And so we find that the reason why the fire is eternal, because it represents the glory of God that consumes the wicked, but it protects the righteous. In fact, notice another one. How many of you want to dwell in the fire forever? How many want to dwell in the fire forever? If you want to dwell in the fire forever, let me hear you say amen. How many of you don't want to be in the fire forever? If so, say amen. Some of you are not sure how to answer this, right? <laughs> well, notice what the Bible says. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? That's the question. Who's going to be in the fire forever? He that walks righteously and speaks uprightly. Friends, how many of you want to be in the fire forever? It's the righteous, friends that is in the fire of God's presence forever, but they are able to dwell in that fire without being consumed by it. Do you see how Satan has just twisted it and, and switched it around in the Christian world? He causes us to think that the wicked are going to be in the fire forever and they're going to be tormented by it. But no, friends, the Bible says that the righteous are going to dwell in the devouring fire, but they will not be devoured by it. They're going to endure. They're going to be able to live in the glory and the light of God's presence forever and not be consumed by it. Can you say amen? And that's why the Bible says in the book of Isaiah, 30, uh, Isaiah 43 and verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you just like those Hebrew boys that were cast into the fire, but they were not burnt by it. You know why? Who was in the fire with them? It was Jesus. Friends, how many of you want to dwell in the fire of God's presence with, for eternity without being burned? That's what the Bible teaches, friends. But for the wicked, that fire would devour them and destroy them. Notice as we review and begin to bring out a few last points tonight. What is the fate of the wicked? The wicked will die an eternal second death. Romans 6, 23. The wicked are going to perish, John 3.16, Luke 13.3. The wicked will burn up, Malachi 4.1. The wicked will be consumed, Psalms 37 verse 20. The wicked will be turned to ashes, Malachi 4 and verse 3. The wicked will cease to exist, Obadiah 1 and verse 16. And Satan himself is going to be completely destroyed, Ezekiel 28 verse 18 and verse 19. And friends, if this is clear, would you please say amen? amen. So remember... The fire is eternal because it represents God's glory. It's not the wicked that are eternal in the fire. Now, some of you might be wondering, what about the expression forever and ever? The Bible tells us in Revelation 14, verse 11, talking about the destruction of the wicked and the smoke of their torment ascends up how long? Forever and ever. And friends, a surface casual reading of this verse seems to indicate that it forever and ever sounds like an unending duration of time. But friends, did you know that this expression, forever and ever, is mentioned 56 times in the Bible in relation and in connection and in conjunction with things that are already ended? 56 times in the Bible. The word or expression forever and ever is connected with something that is already finished, which shows us that when the Bible tells us forever and ever, it does not always mean an unending duration of time. You see, how many of you have ever had to wait for someone for so long and that person finally showed up and said, man, I've been waiting for you forever. Where are you? Have you ever said that before? Or maybe you're waiting in line for something and you're just there for so long and man, I was waiting in that line forever. Well, are you still waiting in that line? Are you still waiting for that person? 
No, you see, we use that, 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 that expression casually, right? You see, the expression forever and ever is relative. It's a relative expression. It's relative to the context, and it's qualified by the nature of the subject that it's attached to. And so because the soul is not immortal, when it says forever and ever, it can't mean an unending duration of time. Let me give you a few examples of this. First Samuel chapter 1, verse 22, the Bible says, talking about Hannah, when she wanted to bring her son Samuel to the temple. And the Bible says, I will not go up until the child be weaned. And then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord, and there abide how long? So Hannah wanted Samuel to, to be in the temple of God with Eli and, and, and to serve the Lord in that temple. And he said, she said, I want him to be there and abide there forever. But is Samuel still there at the temple, yes or no? No, friends. Well, how long was he there? Notice in verse 28, it qualifies and, and uh, defines what forever and ever means in this context. Verse 28 says, Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives he shall be lent to the Lord. So in this context, how long is forever and ever? As long as he lives. The wicked will burn forever and ever. But what does that mean? As long as they live. In other words, they will eventually be consumed by this fire and their existence is going to be eradicated. Notice another example. Bible tells us that Jonah, he went down to the bottom of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Jonah said, man, I was in that that whale, that, that fish forever. But friends, how long was he there? In Jonah 1 verse 17, it says, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. But friends, to him, it probably felt like forever. Isn't that right? And so we find that the expression forever, even in the Bible, is is a relative uh, expression, qualified by the nature of the subject that it's attached to. And so we find the same with eternal fire. It's qualified by the nature of the subject. The subject is the wicked. The wicked are not immortal. Therefore, they're going to be burnt up and consumed by the fire. Notice Isaiah 47, verse 14. Behold, they shall be stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. Then notice, there shall not be a coal to warm at, nor fire to sit before. Friends, it says that the wicked are going to burn with fire. But the last part says that there will be no more fire. Why? Because that literal fire that devours the wicked is, is, is going to be no more when the wicked are completely destroyed and consumed in that fire. And friends, if that makes sense, if that's clear, would you please say amen? And so some of you might be wondering, well, how do we know when or what forever and ever means when we read this in the Bible? Well, here's a good principle that help you remember. Whenever the expression forever and ever is attached to God, to righteousness, to things of of the kingdom of God, that expression forever and ever always means for an unending length of time. Can you say amen? But whenever the expression forever and ever is attached to things like Satan, sin, wickedness, the world, we know that that expression forever and ever, it's a temporal forever and ever. It's one until they die or they're completely destroyed. And, And if you're with me so far, would you please say amen? Now, the next question is this. What about the expression, unquenchable fire? That seems to indicate or seems to sound like eternal torment. What does it mean, unquenchable fire? Notice, we go to the words of Jesus for this one. Mark chapter 9, verse 43 and 44, Jesus said, And if if your hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into, into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quench 
where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, friends, this passage has been confusing to many people. They seem to think that this means the hell is never going to, uh, the fire is never going to go out, that the worm is going to feast upon the bodies of the wicked and they're going to suffer eternal torment. Well, friends, the word hell in this passage is that Greek word Gehenna. And remind me, what does the word Gehenna mean? It means the valley of Hinnom. In fact, you can read about this valley in Jeremiah 32, verse 35. The valley of Hinnom was a valley that was just south of the city of Jerusalem. And in, in, in back in, in Old Testament times, this was the place that children were actually sacrificed to the pagan god Molech. And King Josiah rendered this valley, the valley of Hinnom, that is Gehenna, he rendered it ceremonial, ceremonially unclean by spreading human bones over it. This was a place known in biblical times as a place of apostasy. A place of what? Apostasy, destruction, and death. And you can read that in 2 Kings chapter 23. Now, the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, was also the common cesspool of the city of Jerusalem. It was where the sewage was conducted to, to be carried away by the Kedron River. It was a refuse, refuse dump where the fires burned continually to consume the garbage as well as the deposits of dead animals and worm-infested garbage. And as I mentioned before, the garbage and what was not consumed by fire was then consumed by the maggots. And Jesus constantly passed by this valley, the Valley of Hinnom, during his travels to and from Jerusalem. And he pointed to this valley as a vivid object lesson. As a vivid what? Not a literal place, friends. A visual, vivid object lesson to represent the total annihilation and obliteration of the wicked. In other words, this was not meant to be taken literally. It was simply a symbol of the complete destruction of the wicked. And that's why it says where the worm dies not and the fires are not quenched because that refuse dump, the Valley of Hinnom, the fires continued to burn and the maggots continued to eat, but it did not symbolize a real, it wasn't meant to be taken as a literal place, but as a symbolic place. Now, what did Jesus mean when he says that the fires would not be quenched? I want you to notice how Jeremiah uses this expression. In Jeremiah 17 and verse 27, the Bible says, I will kindle a fire in the gates thereof, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be what? Now, question, is the gates of Jerusalem still on fire right now? No. But were they on fire? Yes. And the Bible says that those fires that burnt up Jerusalem, that it was not quenched. That doesn't mean that it's still burning. You see, to quench a fire means to put out the fire. This fire was not put out by any human hand. But did it eventually die out when there was nothing left to burn? Yes. And so that's what the Bible means when it talks about an unquenchable fire. It is simply a fire that it cannot be put out by human hands, but eventually it will burn out. The literal fire will burn out when there's nothing left to burn. In other words, when it's completed its work, it will go out on its own accord. And friends, if that makes sense, would you please say amen? And so now we review what we learned tonight as we begin to close. What is hell? We learned that the majority of the time you find the word hell in the Bible, it simply means the grave. It means the what? The word Hades and the word Sheol. Not a place of burning. It simply means the grave. And it's also a place of complete annihilation and destruction. Not a place of eternal torment, but a place of destruction. Now, when will hell begin to burn? 
Is it burning right now? Yes or no? When will it begin? At the end of the thousand years. At the very end, on the final day of judgment. And where is hell? Where is it going to burn? Not at the center of the earth, but on the surface of the earth. And how long will it burn? Until there's nothing left but ashes. And out of the ashes of that old world, God will create a brand new world. And finally, question number five as we begin to close. How do we see God's love in hellfire? Well, friends, we see God's love demonstrated in five main ways. How many ways? I want to give it to you right now. One of the first ways we see God's love in the fires of hell is that hell is not burning right now. Can you say amen? If you know people that died that, 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 that you suspect are lost people, friends, they're not being tortured right now in hell. Hell is not burning right now. That is a terrible satanic doctrine that Satan has spread in the Christian world. We learned tonight that, that God's love is demonstrated in hell because it's not burning right now, friends. The wicked are reserved until the day of, punish, day of, day of judgment to be punished. We also see that hell is good news because no one is going to burn eternally. Can you say amen? There's a finality to the destruction of the wicked. God is not a cruel and vindictive God. No one is going to burn eternally. Number three, the main purpose of hell is not to punish wickedness. It's simply to purify the universe of sin and evil and suffering. Can you say amen? Reason number four. Why hell is good news is because you don't have to go there, amen? Because hell was not made with you in mind. The Bible is clear. Jesus said in Matthew 25 that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. So we don't have to go there, friends. We have no business going to hell, friends. After all Jesus has done for us. And finally, the most beautiful truth of all. Why do we not need to go to hell? Reason number five. Because Jesus already experienced hell for us. He tasted of it, friends. He went there, not in a, so much of a literal way, but in his experience, he felt what it was like to be completely cut off and forsaken from his father. What did we learn last night? We learned that Jesus died for the sins of the entire human race, bringing salvation within reach of all. And friends, the question is, did Jesus die? What kind of death did he die? Did Jesus pay for the full wages of sin? The answer is yes, friends. And what is the wages of sin? Romans 6.23, one of the clearest verses. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Friends, it's in the comparison, in contrast to eternal life. The wages or results of sin is an eternal, permanent death. Jesus paid it all. He paid for the full wages. But friends, question, is Jesus still hanging on the cross today? Yes or no? Is he still suffering today in torment on the cross? Yes or no? Friends, listen, if the wages of sin was eternal torment, then that means Jesus should not get off the cross. Because if he did, he would not be paying for the full wages of sin the wages of sin is an eternal permanent second death and in gethsemane this is what jesus was experiencing in his own heart and mind friends in matthew 26 38 jesus cried my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto friends it wasn't physical the second death is 
more than just physical friends. It is emotional, mental agony of being forsaken and cut off from God. For the first time in eternity, the weight of the world's sins was being put upon Christ. And it was so heavy that it was literally crushing the life out of God. You remember, he began to sweat great drops of blood. And the Bible says that the life is in the blood. In Christ is eternal life. And as the blood began to flow, it was a symbol that eternity was being squeezed out of it. He was shedding his blood. Through his blood, we have eternal life. The life is in the blood. He was being cut off. The father hid his face. And in that moment, the cup of the wrath of God that the wicked will experience during the seven last plagues, it was in the hands of Jesus, and he did not want to drink it. He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup, the cup of a second death, friends, let it pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, thy will be done. He committed himself to drinking the cup of tasting death for us. He was completely forsaken, brothers and sisters. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, friends, in his experience, he was dying something that we can never fully comprehend. We can never fully comprehend just how much Jesus gave. But let me make something clear for us tonight. Let me make something clear. Jesus did not die the second death in reality because he resurrected from the grave. He died it in experience because he could not see beyond the portals of the tomb. But his experience was his reality. Do you see the difference? He didn't die it in reality because he resurrected, but in his experience, he could not have the hope he was paying the full wages of sin but his reality his experience was his reality and some people might question well but but he didn't he wasn't burnt up by fire but friends do you remember in the old testament the death and sacrifice of christ was symbolized by something In the sanctuary service, the lamb was slain, his blood was shed, and then his body was placed upon the altar, and that body, that lamb, was consumed by fire. Do you see it, friends? We have a symbol here that gives us some deeper insight into what exactly Jesus was experiencing. One of the best news in the Bible, the reason why hellfire is good news is because we see Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He is experiencing what hell is like so that we would never have to experience it. He would rather go to hell for you than to live in heaven without you. He died the death that we should have died so that we could live the life that he lived. And I can imagine at the end of, now friends, there's more we can say about that. But one thing we can all agree on, that the blood of Jesus is sufficient for our eternal salvation, amen? And that no matter what happened at the cross, we know that it's more than we can even think. 
It has to be more, not less. You know why? Because we're going to be studying the science of the cross and salvation throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, and we will never cease to be amazed of just how much Jesus gave. You see, whatever we think he gave, it has to be more than that and not less, especially if we're going to look into it for all of eternity. Friends, you are the most valuable thing in the universe. Jesus gave all for you. I can imagine at the end of the thousand years, as the holy city descends and the wicked are resurrected in the second resurrection, surrounding the city of God, trying to take by force the kingdom, and just before they are eradicated from the universe, in words of intense, infinite agony, Jesus begins to weep over the wicked, whose number is like the sand of the sea. And I can imagine our God with bitter tears. He begins to speak to his children that have rejected his gift. I wanted to draw you. I wanted to embrace you. Oh, I love you. I had such beautiful plans for you. There was so much I wanted to give you for all of eternity. We could have walked the streets of gold together. For all of eternity, we could have picked the fruit from the tree of life together. We could have had sweet fellowship together. I wanted to develop you into the original purpose of which you were created. I want to expand every thought of your mind to enhance all of your talents and develop new ones in you. But you closed your ears to my pleadings. You ignored my voice. You were too busy with things that did not really matter. You wasted your time. You put the Bible on the shelf and you let, allowed it to collect dust. You threw it all away. For what? You threw away my gift for the world. Why? I can imagine how God's heart is going to break. Oh, friends, can you hear his infinite heart weeping tonight? Can you feel the pain that Jesus will feel? I can imagine Jesus saying to the wicked, what more could I have done? Is there something more that I could have done to save you? Is there anything more that I could have done? wicked see the record of their lives they respond by saying God you could have not done anything more you've done everything you possibly could to save us we are lost I am lost not because of you I'm lost because of me and I can imagine as God looks upon the wicked and the fire devours them he's gonna break his heart he's gonna weep friends and, I, and someone said that the destruction of the wicked in the, in the fire is kind of like God's last manifest, manifestation of love. Because what does the fire represent? It represents love that cannot be quenched. And friends, what devours and destroys the wicked? It's the presence of God, His glory. They can't live in that presence. It's as if the Lord gives a final embrace to the human race and the wicked now feel in their flesh why it is they would not be happy in heaven and they feel God's love his fiery love one last time the last blow is not God giving it to the wicked it's the wicked breaking the heart of God by throwing it all the way, all the way, 
for the cheap things of this world. Tonight, friends, don't throw it away. I want to see Jesus. Don't you? I want to look into his face. I want to walk in the fire of his presence forever. I want to know him even more. I want to serve him for the rest of my life. He paid our debt in full. Therefore, none of us have to be lost. Tonight, as we surrender our hearts to Jesus, again, our whole hearts, I invite you to bow your heads. Father in heaven, help us, Lord, to give all because you gave all. And as your heads are bowed and as your eyes are closed, listen carefully to the words of this song. There is one loves me so that for me he died. He's my dear, precious Savior, so true. On the cross for my sins, he was crucified. I want to see Jesus, don't you? I want to see Jesus, don't you? He's my Savior, so faithful and true. On the cross for my sins, he was crucified. I want to see Jesus, don't you? When I'm weary and faint, he is always there with his songs. My strength doth renew, and he comforts my heart, singing words of cheer. I want to see Jesus, don't you? I want to see Jesus, don't you? cross for my sins. He was crucified. I want to see Jesus, don't you? Tonight, if you want to see Jesus in peace, if you want to dwell in the fire of his presence for eternity, you must first let the fire of his presence consume the sin of your life tonight. You must walk and be baptized in that fire. It's the Holy Spirit, friends. It's the love of God to fill our soul, to dispel all fear from our lives. So tonight, if you'd like to surrender to the love of Jesus again, I want to invite you 
as far as possible if you're able to go to your knees with me as we close in prayer tonight if you're we if your knee, knees are weak then just kneel in your heart the main thing is we surrender to him who gave all for us tonight father in heaven Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness we thank you so much for your love that is stronger than death. Your love that is like a flame of fire. It consumes sin and it purifies your people. Lord, we pray tonight that as we've learned this very serious topic of hell, that you'd help us to surrender to you, not because we are afraid, Because we know, Lord, that there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Lord, thank you that we can see your love even in this hot topic. Your mercy and justice is demonstrated. And your love has drawn us closer to you. Tonight, Lord, our prayer is that you'd please come into our hearts. We thank you, Lord, that you paid our debt in full. You took our place. You died so that we could live. You suffered so that we could be saved. Lord, tonight we receive your gift of grace that brings eternal life. We receive it by faith and we thank you that when we believe in you, we will not perish but have everlasting life. As we leave this place, give us that hope. Give us that assurance. Forgive us for our sins, cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and now fill us with joy, fill us with peace, fill us with rest, and be with us as we leave this place, but never from your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.